If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mercy, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. Aren't you glad our salvation does not depend upon our service going smoothly? And our salvation does not depend upon our microphones working? Everybody say it's all about Jesus. That is the name of our sermon today, and I'm just so happy that that is true. This one's not on anymore, is it? Okay, let's just leave that off for the rest of the day. I'm just going to throw this around. Hey, guys, for the last couple weeks, I have been praying with Pastor Chauncey and Pastor Ever about what we should focus on in terms of our biblical teaching on Sunday mornings for this coming season of our life together as a church. I'm really excited. In the near future, I think we're going to dive into the Gospel of Luke and spend some extended time together studying the Gospel of Luke, which is a beautiful, radical study of Jesus and of the kingdom of God. So I'm really excited about that. But we felt like, as we were praying and discussing, we should first take several weeks together as a new church, because we are a new church now. We've merged and become this new thing that God is doing. And we want to spend several weeks talking about what are the values that unite us now as a local church? What are the most important things that give us focus and unite us? So people often talk about Core values. And when, when we're talking about values, we're really just trying to answer the question, what do we love? What do we love the most? 
What do we treasure the most? What is the most important to us? And if you want to think about a community, a community is a group of people in a particular time and place. And if it's a united community, it's united by shared values, by common loves. Okay, so as a local church, if we're disunited, if we're divided from one another, that means we love different things. We have different treasures and different priorities are driving the things that we think and do. If we're united, it means we're united by shared values. We love the same thing. And Jesus cares a lot about the values of our hearts. As a matter of fact, I want to just point you to a couple things Jesus says about this. If you have your Bible, you can flip to Luke chapter 6. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 45. He says this, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. That's Luke 6:45. What Jesus is saying is this, in your heart you have treasures. There's things that are valuable to you, that are precious to you, that are most important to you, and that those treasures will shape the whole direction of your life, everything that you say and everything that you do. So this is about the heart. Everybody say the heart. In scripture, the heart is this the place uh, it's the center of our will. It's the center of our values. It's the center of our thoughts. And it drives and sets the direction for our life. And another occasion, or actually, same passage, just a little bit earlier, Luke chapter 6, verse 15. Jesus is rebuking some religious leaders. And these people taught the Bible. In fact, they probably had most of the Bible committed to memory. And they were very scrupulous about obeying the rules in the Bible as they understood them and explained them to others. And yet Jesus knows that they loved the wrong things. Their hearts were misaligned. And he rebukes them like this. Luke chapter 6, verse 15. He, he says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So what Jesus is saying here is all of us are driven by the values of our heart. What do we love? What do we treasure the most? What are our highest priorities? And that many people are treasuring things that God doesn't treasure and failing to treasure things that God does treasure. So what we're saying is we want to be a community in which the Holy Spirit of God takes the gospel of grace and the words of scripture and does a transforming work in our hearts so that we love what he loves and we treasure what he treasures. The great fourth century teacher, Augustine of Hippo, described sin as disordered loves, meaning that the, the, the basic meaning of sin is we love some things too much and other things too little. And you can see how having disordered loves can mess up your life. If you love your career more than your family, your family's going to fall apart, right? It's not that your career is bad. Your career is good. You should love it. But we've got to have the right priorities, rightly ordered loves. And so St. Augustine involved the transforming work that Jesus does in our lives as reordering our loves so that we love the right things. Or as the Christian teacher James K. Smith put it, you are what you love. Whatever you most treasure defines who you are and what sets the direction of your life. So we're talking about values. We're talking about what do we really love as a community. And today, as we're starting out a few weeks to think about that together, we just want to be really, really clear from the very beginning 
that the thing that we value more than anything else is Jesus. The person of Jesus. He's the one who unites us. So everybody say, it's all about Jesus. And look brief with, briefly with me at verses 6 and 7 of our text. This sums it up. We're going to zoom back in a second and talk about this text more holistically. But I just want you to look at these verses. And, and Paul says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. To be a Christian is, a person, is to be a person who has received Christ Jesus the Lord. You've acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again, and you've opened your heart to him and said, Jesus, come into my life, save me, transform me, heal me, guide me, direct me. You're the boss. That's what it means to be a Christian. So everybody say, it's all about Jesus. We're going to say that a lot today, probably, because that's the key thing. But listen, what Paul says, receiving Jesus is how you begin the Christian journey. But as you think about the rest of the journey, look, Paul uses three metaphors here. He says, walk in Jesus. Then he says, be rooted in Jesus, be built up in Jesus. And all of these metaphors are talking about an ongoing way of life. To be a disciple of Jesus, to be a healthy Christian means my day to day walk one step at a time. When I go to work, when I go to school, when I'm spending time with my family, everything that I'm doing, I'm walking in Jesus. Jesus is the atmosphere with, with, within which I live. I'm plugged into Jesus. I'm thinking about Jesus. I'm trusting Jesus. I'm praying to Jesus. I'm loving Jesus. That's the spirituality of everyday life, the Christian life. He says we're rooted in Jesus Christ. If a plant has roots in good soil, it'll grow and be healthy and bear fruit. If a plant does not have roots in good soil, it'll die. And Paul is saying what it means to be a Christian or a Christian community is that we're people who every day, day by day, our roots are going deep into Jesus. So before we go on today, I just want to pause and pray. And I want to invite you to uh, bow your heads and, and I'm going to be quiet for a second. And here's the reality. We'll talk more about this as we go. But it seems obvious and basic to say that Christians and a Christian community and a Christian church should be all about Jesus. But here's a fact. It is very easy and very common for Christian churches to love something else more than Jesus. It is very easy and very common for Christian churches to put their faith in something other than the one and only Lord, King Jesus. And it's very easy for us as a community or as individuals to get distracted so that something other than Jesus becomes most important to us. It's not that we stop believing in Jesus or deny Jesus, but something else just took center stage in our hearts and our community. And when we do that, we will be robbing ourselves of the joy and the power and the life that is our birthright as children of God. But as we come back to Jesus and recenter on him, he gives us unity. He gives us power. He gives us purpose. He gives us life and forgiveness and healing. So we want to be centered in Jesus. So right now, let's just take a moment. If you would bow your heads and I just want to ask you to pray for yourself and for everybody else in the room and for our brothers and sisters listening to the Spanish sermon, that the Holy Spirit would be doing a renewing work in our hearts to help us recenter in Jesus today.
Our Father in heaven, we come to you now in the precious name of Jesus and ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would speak to me and that you'd speak through me and that you'd speak to all of our hearts today. Give us grace to understand your word, to remember your word, to be healed and transformed by your word. If there's thoughts that have been running in our heads, thought patterns that need to be replaced by the truth of Jesus, I pray that that would happen today. But let your Holy Spirit do a renewing work in us by grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, to help us think about our theme today, we're going to spend a few minutes diving into this text from Paul's letter to the Colossians. And to help set the stage, let me explain that in this letter, Paul, the apostle, the great missionary of the early Christian movement, is writing to the Christian community, the church in the city of Colossae. And most of his letters are written to churches that he started. So he was a church planter and he had a close relationship with the people who were receiving his letters. But that's not the case this time. Paul had apparently never been to visit this church in Colossae. He knew personally very few people there, but he had a deep concern for this church. And in many ways, the church was his spiritual grandchild because this church was started by a guy named Epaphras. And Epaphras was a member of Paul's missionary team. Paul was probably his spiritual mentor and Epaphras had gone back or had gone to Colossae and started this church. And then he visited the church and came back to Paul and gave a report that God is doing awesome stuff in Colossae. This church is healthy. It's growing. The gospel has taken deep roots in their hearts and it's starting to spread out from Colossae to other parts of the Roman Empire surrounding that area. And so Paul is really encouraged. But Epaphras also shares some concerns that there are various kinds of false teachings cropping up in the city of Colossae and in this church that threaten to derail them by getting them focused on something other than Jesus. So Paul is saying to this church, it's all about Jesus. That's what the whole letter is about. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Paul keeps um, hammering on that note, which is why we keep saying it today. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. That's good. You know, when Chauncey has a baby and goes on paternity leave, you really feel his absence right here saying amen a lot. So I need some of the rest of you guys to step up. I heard Jared from the back, but he can't carry it on his own. Okay, so Kenny, I'm counting on you, brother. I know you have it in you. Chauncey has big shoes to fill, metaphorically speaking, but you got this. So um, he Paul is saying to this church, it's all about Jesus. And you can see this uh, right from the beginning of our text. Let's look again at Verses one through three, which I think is mostly a prayer report. Paul is telling these believers how he's been praying for them. And listen to what he says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, pause right here. He says, I want you to understand how much I'm struggling for you, how hard I'm working for you. And remember, he doesn't know these people personally. He just says they haven't seen me face to face. So what does he mean? Well, part of what he means is that his apostolic ministry is concerned not just with the particular churches he's planted, but it's concerned with all of God's people everywhere. He cares about the whole church and we should care about the whole church, too, shouldn't we? And his efforts are thinking about how can I build God's universal church globally everywhere? There's people that call on the name of Jesus. That's my family and I care about them. But more specifically, if we keep reading the letter, it becomes clear that Paul has been struggling for them in intercessory prayer. Listen, if you've ever spent time, spent hours in intercessory prayer 
for somebody, you know that prayer is spiritual warfare. Prayer is hard work to really get on your knees and to go to work crying out to God for an extended period of time for a group of people is struggle. It's effort. And Paul has been struggling for them. He's been praying for them. And then he goes on to explain what he has been praying for them. So let's keep reading. Verse two. He says he's praying that their hearts may be encouraged. So that's the first thing he wants them to be encouraged. Everybody say encouraged. And then he says, um, being knit together in love. So I want your hearts to be sewn together, tied together as one spiritual family in love. So he's praying that they'll be united. Everybody say united. So he wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to be united. And then he says this to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To paraphrase that, paraphrase that third thing he's been praying, he's saying, I want you to experience the deep joy and spiritual riches that come from knowing Jesus Christ. That's what I want for you. I long for you to know Jesus intellectually, to know the truth about him. But at a deeper existential, experiential level, I want you to know Jesus as your friend. I want you to know Jesus as your Lord, as your savior, as your leader, as your teacher. Because when you know Jesus, you get everything. You get the life of God. You get the power of God. You get purpose. You get forgiveness. It's all about Jesus. And I love this metaphor in verse 3. He says, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this is a metaphor which is cool. It's calling us to go on a treasure hunt. When I was a kid, I used to like the book Treasure Island. Anybody read that book? see you in the back. (laughs) Anybody see the movie Muppet Treasure Island? Okay, that's a few more hands. All right, we're good. (laughs) Okay, you don't really need to know anything about the book. But the point here is it was exciting as a kid because you got excited with Jim Hawkins and all these other people. They're going to find this island, Treasure Island, and they're taking a bunch of shovels and they're going to they got a map and they're going to dig, dig, dig and find. There are things buried there that are precious that if they could take those things home, they're going to be rich for the rest of their lives. And Paul is saying, To the Christian, hey, part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that we're going on a treasure hunt. We're seeking for precious jewels, wisdom for life, wisdom that leads to joy and human flourishing. Okay, who here needs some wisdom for some tough stuff you're dealing with in your life? We've got relationship problems. We need wisdom. We've got challenging situations at work. We need wisdom. We, we ask big existential questions like, what is the meaning of my life? What am I here for? Do I even matter? Does anybody care about me? What's my destiny? Where I'm going? That all those questions are about the pursuit of wisdom. And what Paul is saying right here is, if you want to find wisdom for all these different situations, you just need to keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper into Jesus. You don't need to go anywhere else. The, the key To a wise life and a flourishing life is just every day, get out your shovel and dig deeper and deeper and deeper into Jesus Christ. So the the point from the beginning is it's all about Jesus. And notice here that this prayer that people would know Jesus is connected to Paul's prayers for encouragement and for unity. If your heart is discouraged and you want to get your heart healthy, what you need is to get your heart centered in the person of Jesus and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that will 
work in an enduring way. We can do all the healthy rhythms we want. We can do all the self-care we want. We can do all the positive self-talk we want. And if we're not rooted in the person of Jesus and in his gospel of grace, it will all be deeply inadequate. Have you noticed that the more that you try and make your life focused on being okay and pampering yourself and solving all your problems, the more it doesn't work? There's like this paradox. Jesus says, if you love your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. The key to encouraging is to recognize that life is all about Jesus, which means it's not all about us. So everybody say, it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. And if I focus on Jesus and the fact that Jesus is God loving me enough to come and suffer and die for me so that I can live with him and enjoy him forever, that's something to keep you going during hard times. And unity is also connected to this thing about knowing Jesus. Friends, here's the, the hard truth. If you see a church that is divided, you're seeing a church that is not all about Jesus. If you see a church where there's constant fighting and bickering and difficulty and factionalism, that means that for some or most or all the members, something other than Jesus has become most important. We could flip the script and say it this way. Wherever you find a community that trusts and loves Jesus above all else, they will be united. They might disagree about the color of the carpet and the volume of the music and whatever else. But if, if they're all about Jesus and they're united in that and he's the most important, they can, they can work out their problems about the carpet. Which this carpet is great. What's that, burgundy? I don't even know what to call that. But it doesn't matter because it's all about Jesus, right? So... Verses 6 and 7, we've already looked at. Paul's elaborating on this point. What does it mean to be a Christian community? It means you've received Jesus. It means you're rooted in Jesus. It means you're walking in Jesus day by day. Why does Paul keep emphasizing this point so repetitively? And why do I keep emphasizing this point so repetitively today? Well, it's because Paul understands that it's very easy to get focused on something other than Jesus without noticing it. It's very easy to be taken captive and deluded. Let me show you two verses where he talks about this. Verse four says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What is plausible arguments means? It means teaching that sounds right, sounds very convincing, but is wrong. Okay. Even in your church, Paul says, it's possible to get together and read the Bible and talk about it and be getting off center, becoming deluded, become your community is rooted in something that's not real and life-giving because you've lost focus on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Then look now down at verse 8. It says this, See to it that no one takes you captive. Now that's a powerful metaphor. Anybody want to be taken captive and carried off and enslaved? Paul's saying there's a real danger that you as a community could be kidnapped and carried off and put in shackles and made a slave. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by what? By philosophy and empty deceit. Now, Paul's problem is not with philosophy per se. Philosophy just means the love of wisdom. But what he's saying is real wisdom is rooted in who? That's right. It's all about Jesus. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he's saying there is a philosophy, a way that seems right to people it seems wise, it seems to make sense, but it's not rooted in Jesus. Therefore, it's empty and deceptive. It le leaves you hollow. Anybody ever spent some time in your life chasing something that you thought was going to satisfy you, and at the end you were just empty? That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. 
He goes on to describe what the, what's the problem with these philosophies. They're according to human tradition. It's, it's just people wisdom. It's stuff human beings made up. It's not coming from Christ. It's not pointing back to Christ. This philosophy is according to the elemental spirits of the world. It's difficult to say exactly what Paul means there. Probably he's talking about spiritual beings. You could say demons or something like that. But the worldview of the people he's writing to associated many of the fundamental laws of nature with various spiritual powers. He's going to come back to this theme in a little bit. And and it was kind of a superstitious worldview. But interestingly, Paul doesn't say there's no spiritual beings all around you. What he says as he goes on is this. There's two kinds of spiritual beings, and you don't need to focus on either of them. There's good spiritual beings. You don't need to focus on them because all they are like you is servants of King Jesus. And then there's bad spiritual beings. You don't need to focus on them either because Jesus has defeated them through his cross and resurrection. So he's saying, don't get distracted by teaching that is not Christ-centered because it may sound good to you. It may feel like it's going to lead you to a healthy place. But in reality, if it's coming from human beings or from demons, it's not coming from God's word. It's not Christ-centered. It's going to make you a slave and it's going to leave you empty. Now, we need to pause right now. Because just a second ago, I said it's very possible and very common for something other than Jesus to become the center of a church's life. You know individually that as a Christian, there's times where Jesus is your first love and you're rooted in him. And those are the times that you're flourishing spiritually and bearing fruit. There's other times where it's not like you stop believing in Jesus, but other stuff has become more important to you. And that's when you're spiritually languishing. Same is true for a church community. What would be some examples for a church community? What could become more important to us than Jesus? Well, I've got a list. You can make your own list. You can add to my list. Here's one thing I wrote. Church growth and appearing successful. There's a lot of congregations who fall into this trap. It's easy for any of us that are church leaders to fall into this trap. We want to make more disciples of Jesus. Don't you want to make more disciples of Jesus? You want to see the gospel spread throughout our community and more and more people coming to know the Lord and worshiping God together? Of course we want that. But it's easy to get focused on, hey, we've got to get more and more people in here. And before long, we're focused on church growth and feeling like we're successful. Or we might not measure success by... How many people show up, but we might measure it by some other rubric that's still not Jesus. How much did we love vulnerable, hurting people in our community? How much did we work for justice? You know, how much did we welcome refugees? Whatever it is, we've got some metric. And if the metric is not Jesus, Paul, we're missing it, right? The truth, though, is that if we're rooted in Jesus and he's our center, over time we'll bear fruit. And that will involve evangelism it will involve multiplying disciples and caring for the poor and welcoming refugees and uh, working for justice and all those things but the focus has got to be nothing other than jesus which means as a church if there comes a point where we have to make a decision and it feels like this one's going to lead to growth but that one's going to keep us deeply rooted in jesus let's do the one that keeps us deeply rooted in jesus that's going to be how we decide every single time if this one is going to cause us to lose some people if this one's going to cause us Uh, To lose momentum or cause one of our programs to shut down, but it would also be faithful and obedient to King Jesus. Let's do it anyway. I don't get my excitement and my identity out of how many people show up on Sunday. And I don't fear the church shrink. I don't even really care about this church institution, how long it lasts. We don't even know what the name is right now, which is great. But whatever we're going to name, Christ Community Church at Rancho Village, 
whatever this thing is. I would love it if it lasts 400 years and keeps bearing fruit. That would be fun. But if obedience to Jesus means we do this for a while and then God has a different plan, that's fine. Because, friends, everybody say it's all about Jesus. There's lots of other things we could get focused on. Each of us could get focused on self-fulfillment or self-actualization or self-expression. That's maybe the idol of choice in our culture. And it rips us apart. Most people go into marriages thinking this marriage is going to fulfill me and fulfill my desires. And it's going to help me to self-actualize. And maybe I'll get to have some emotional fulfillment. It's going to help me with my career. And then later when it. The marriage ends up demanding a lot more sacrifice from you than you feel like it's giving to you emotionally. Then you give up on it. That's different than a biblical vision that says I'm entering into this sacred calling. And there's a lot of reasons for marriage to love one another, to support one another, to encourage one another, to care for children, all those things. But according to the Bible, the central reason for a marriage is to tell the truth about Jesus by the way that we love one another. A marriage is a living parable of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And. But we go into it for self-fulfillment, and then it ends up causing problems. Same can happen at church. In our culture, it's just so common to, like, I'm going to find a church that I feel comfortable in that meets my needs and the needs of my family, and I'll be in that church until it doesn't anymore. Then I'll go somewhere else. And actually, if I can get all the spiritual and emotional help I need just through, you know, listening to podcasts and whatever, why go to church at all? And we're missing the point. The church is a community of disciples of Jesus who have covenanted together to do the will of Jesus in this time and place. So it's not about individual self-fulfillment. There's other things we can make most important to us. Our traditions is just common. This is how we've always done it. We've done uh, community group this way. We've done Sunday school this way. We've done apartment outreach ministries this way. We've done the sermon this way. We've done the offertory this way. Speaking of the offertory, if I could just follow up on what my brother said. If you brought something to give, you can still give it this week. The basket's right there. So you can just walk up during the fourth song. You don't have to do it during the third song. But, but the point is, we don't need to be married to our traditions, right? Any tradition, we need to be willing to change for Jesus. A church can be more concerned about political and national loyalties than it is Jesus. It's easy to look at historical moments like when the church in Germany during World War II, for the most part, sold its soul to be united with the Nazi party and think, how could that ever happen? It's much harder to notice when it's happening here. But let me tell you something. A couple years ago, I was riding around with a man who at the time was was the director over all of the Oklahoma Baptists, okay? And we rode around and looked at different parts of the city and prayed and told stories about what Jesus was doing. I met with him several times in his office and we were just praying. And he, by the way, he was really encouraged by what's happening in South Oklahoma City. And he's really encouraged by what's happening right now with the merger of Christ Community Church and Rancho Village. But one of the things he told me was, John Mark, if you got in a car and rode around with me to many of our churches throughout the state and you got in the pulpit and preached the gospel, you would hear one or two people say amen. But if you started talking about God and country, they would come out of their seats. And what he was saying is this. It's not that we've stopped believing in Jesus. It's just that we care more about national and political loyalty than we do about Jesus Christ. And that's why our churches are dying. By the way, that's also why a younger generation is walking away from the church. You've heard of the nuns, people that used to identify as Christian and now identify as no religious affiliation. If you look at the research on that group, part of what they're saying is we're leaving because we believe the churches that we were formed in cared more about politics and specifically about conservative politics than they did about Jesus. 
We can make church growth our idol. We can make self-fulfillment our idol. We can make our traditions our idols. We can make political and national loyalties our idols. We can make our status or our role or our power and popularity within the community our idol. We could live for what's my influence in the church? What's my notoriety in the church? Am I on the leadership group? Am I in the core team? Am I one of the pastor's favorites? Let me tell you, friends, there's a lot more exciting things in life than being one of John Mark's favorites, okay? I am one of John Mark's favorites. It's not that big of a deal, really. What we need to focus on is Jesus. So my point here is all these things could easily become the center of our community life or the way that I as an individual relate to a church. And all of them, Paul says, they will make us slaves. They're empty. They're deceptive. There's only one thing that can make us free, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. Now, for the last few minutes together, I want to just consider this question. Why should our church be all about Jesus? Why should we make it all about Jesus? We've already started to answer that question when we said all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. You want to know how to know God? You just need Jesus. You want to know how to live a wise and just and flourishing life? You need Jesus. But verses 9 through 15 give us a bunch of really, really, really good reasons to make our lives and our church community all about Jesus. So let's just look at them. I'm going to just number these off. First, because the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Look at verse 9. It says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is talking about what we call the incarnation. The God who created the universe has entered into human history in a new way in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. So that when we read the stories about Jesus healing blind people and healing leopards and hugging children and forgiving women who were caught in adultery and all of the precious things that Jesus does, flipping tables in the temple and welcoming immigrants and and, uh, welcoming Samaritans and all the radical teaching, what we're seeing is God. That's what we're seeing. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to have a deep personal relationship with God and know his heart, look at Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. In him, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. Here's a second reason. He says, we have been filled in him. If we're Christians, look at verse 10. Verse 9 said, in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10, and you have been filled in Jesus. What's amazing is he's saying, past tense, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, the God of the universe who fills everything has filled you. Jesus has filled you. He has empowered you. He has satisfied you. That is your identity. You are in Christ. But what Paul is saying is it's easy for us to forget who we are and we start trying to fill ourselves up elsewhere. We start going to other places and other things to fulfill us. I'm going to find fulfillment in my career. Or I'm going to find fulfillment in my family or whatever it may be. And Jesus and Paul is saying only Jesus can bring lasting hope and purpose and satisfaction and power to your life. A third reason we should make Jesus the center is also in verse 10, the second half of the verse, it says, He is the head of all rule and authority. All human power is subject to the higher authority of Jesus. All angelic power is subject to the higher authority of Jesus. All demonic power must ultimately submit to King Jesus. He's the head of all rule and authority. He's in charge of this church. He's in charge of the universal church. He's in charge of everything. So why would we make anything else central for us? He's got all power and authority. A fourth reason shows up 
in verses 11 through 13, and I'll just sum it up like this. We, if we are Christians, have died and risen in Jesus. Now, let's read those verses for a moment and talk about what they mean, because there's a lot going on there. But we're just going to touch on it. It says, verse 11, in him, that is in Jesus, also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Now, like I said, there's a lot going on in these passages and it would take a couple in this verse. So baptism is a really special part of the Christian life. But what Paul is saying is that what's really important is that God does a saving work in us through Jesus Christ. And what he does in us is what we see uh, pictured in the act of baptism. When we go under the water, we're dying, Paul says, to our old way of life. And then we're rising to a new way of life. And what Paul is saying is. When you trust in Jesus Christ, you're united to him. You may notice Paul keeps using the phrase in Christ or in Christ Jesus. You can picture it like this. Your hands coming together. It's one of Paul's favorite phrases. Everybody say in Christ Jesus. This theme of union with Jesus means to be a Christian means not just I believe a certain set of ideas, but the Holy Spirit has caused me to be deeply spiritually connected to a person. Named Jesus Christ. And part of that union with Christ means I have died with Jesus Christ and I have risen with Jesus Christ. What, why does that matter? What does it mean? Paul says before he teaches in Colossians and elsewhere, before that happened, we were all slaves to the bad impulses in us. Listen, you know and I know that inside you and inside me, there's always a war going on between good and evil. Right? We've often quoted that line as a church, that the line between good and evil doesn't, it's not between me and my enemies or between our tribe and the other people. The line between good and evil runs through each one of us, right? And what Paul teaches is that before we trusted in Jesus, the battle was going on between good and evil. We, we were made in the image of God, so we had good impulses in us to love people and to do what's right and to care for people and so on. But there was also all sorts of selfish, self-destructive Impulses, But the problem was like all the firepower and ammo and body armor was on the evil side. So we were trying really hard, but it's like we had slingshots and we were fighting against tanks. And so our life was driven and motivated by these evil impulses and we couldn't stop doing it. And I don't I'm not going to take a show of hands right here. But all of you, all of us know what it's like to want to do the right thing, but to feel enslaved by our destructive impulses. But Paul says, when you trusted in Jesus Everything changed. The evil impulses in you were crucified with Christ. Doesn't mean they're all the way gone until we're glorified with Christ in heaven. But it means they've lost their power. They've got the slingshots now. And the, the good inside of you has been raised with Christ. New desires for God. New impulses to love our neighbors, a new concern about integrity and justice and truth and doing what's right has arisen in us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, now all the firepower is on the good side, which means Paul is saying, if you've got self-destructive lifestyle issues that are dominating your life and hurting other people, there's all sorts of practical strategies 
We can and should use to fight against those self-destructive patterns. But the one and only reason that we can have hope is because if we're in Christ, the old person has died and the new person is risen. And King Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is fighting with us so that good will win. That's a powerful truth. What's the next reason? I lost track of what number we're on. Number five, what's the fifth reason that Jesus should be the center of our life? If we could keep reading through verse 13, it uses a really powerful metaphor to say that only in Jesus can we experience the forgiveness that we all desperately want and need. Look at what it says. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, we've all sinned. Trespassing is a powerful metaphor, right? We've all wandered into moral territory that we should not have wandered into. We've all been dishonest. We've all hurt people. And Jesus, if we're Christians, he's forgiven us all of our trespasses. And then he says this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love that. I pray that the Holy Spirit will take that picture and implant it in your mind's eye. This is so powerful. It's so beautiful. What is Paul saying? He's saying, imagine that there's a legal document. That describes what does God require of you. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Never lie. Always practice justice for the widow and the fatherless and the orphan. Be generous to the poor and those who are hurting. Don't commit adultery. And as a matter of fact, don't even lust after a person who's not your spouse in your heart. Even sexual sin at the level of our imagination is a serious sin. All those kind of things. It lists out the requirements and then it lists every time you've broken them. Isn't that a terrifying thought? I would have a really long piece of paper. And you would too. And Paul's saying, imagine that recorded on that is all the worst moments of your life. The ones you try to forget about, but they keep coming back to you in the middle of the night when you lost your temper and really hurt somebody. When you did that thing that you said you never do and thought you never do, but now you can't undo it. The things you wish you could get in a time machine and go back and relive that moment that has haunted you ever since. It's all recorded. It's all written down. And the problem is, there's not, we could try to do a lot of good stuff to wipe it out, put that on the list too, but however much we help old ladies across the street or try to be nice to our families, we call, call your mom. My mom's here today. Hi, mom. <laughs> however, however much we do those nice things, it doesn't get rid of any of the bad stuff on the list. Paul says that's a deep problem for any of us. The reason that so many of us deal with such guilt and shame is because we, we're guilty. and We've done a lot of shameful stuff. Paul says, here's the only solution. If you want to know what the cross of Jesus was all about, it, it happened that when Romans crucified people, They would often nail on that thing a sign describing why this person is being crucified. Like this guy murdered two people. This guy was an insurrectionist. You remember they did it to Jesus. They they put nailed on there in multiple languages, king of the Jews. But what Paul is saying is this. Pontius Pilate had the nail on there. He's being crucified because he's king of the Jews. But God knows the real reason he was nailed on there. And he says that the reason for his suffering and death was your rap sheet. God nailed it on there, which means now 
when my messed up psychology or when the devil brings to my mind all those worst moments that I have, the Holy Spirit in me points to the cross of Jesus and says, what you did was bad, but it's like I've forgotten it because it's already been paid in full. Jesus bore on himself all of your sin and all of its consequences. Okay, so the judge said, you're guilty. You deserve death. And Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll take it. So everything that's on that rap sheet, it's like the blood of Jesus just crossing it all out, wiping it all out. It's done. It's paid for. We don't have to try and convince ourselves that we're not that bad anymore. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you do something really bad and you go talk to your friend about it and they say, it's all right, you're not that bad, you're just human. And it makes you feel good for a second. But then later that night, you don't feel good anymore because you're like, actually, it was pretty bad. You ever had that experience? The gospel is way better. It doesn't lie to us and try and say, you're not that bad. Actually, you're probably more messed up than you know. But what it says is, nonetheless, all of the worst things you have done or are doing or will do are paid in full. You don't have to be ashamed of any of them. You don't have to be considered guilty of any of them. Jesus has taken all of them on himself. God came in the flesh to pay your debts to God. That's what it's saying on the cross so that now you are free in Christ. Why should we not make church growth the center of our community? Because having a full sanctuary could never free us from the record of our debts. Why should we not make political or national identity our idol? Because our big problem is the evil inside of us and no politician could save us from that. We could keep going down the line. Why should we never make our mission to do good in the community our idol? Because we need to be saved just as bad as the rest of the community does. And only Jesus can save us. The gospel of Jesus Christ says we've died with him. We've risen with him. We've been forgiven with him. Last one. I'm almost done. Here's, here's one more reason why we should make Jesus the center of our lives. And this may be one that you haven't thought about because we're all American, Western materialists here but look at what verse 15 says says jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him what is paul saying he's saying you guys believe in all sorts of spiritual beings and you're focused on that and i'm not going to say you're just being superstitious there really are spiritual beings there's good ones that submit to king jesus and there's bad ones that are out trying to destroy life. And all around us in our midst, as we experience substance abuse and addiction, and as we experience the epidemic of fatherlessness in our community, and as we experience powers and principalities and strongholds of racism and just greed and self-centeredness and all the sins that are all around us, we, we not only have like moral, psychological problems, there's a spiritual, demonic problem going on. There is an invisible enemy of God that wants to dishonor God and destroy our lives. And what Paul is saying is that we were going to lose that fight, but Jesus has already won that fight. He's already disarmed and defeated those rulers and authorities. Now, if we think about the practical implications of that, we could talk about it at an individual level. If there's some besetting sin that you're struggling with and dealing with, not only have you died with Christ and risen with Christ, But now, if you're submitted to Jesus and you're praying and you're walking in community in his word, the spiritual forces of evil that used to keep you enslaved cannot enslave you anymore. Just bring the thing into the light and God will help you. But we can also talk about it at a wider 
level as far as the work we're doing in the community. As a church, we're at work all the time sharing the gospel in the neighborhood. We're at work tutoring kids to try and address the education inequities in our community. We're at work making disciples. We're at work advocating for immigrants and refugees. This is stuff we do together all the time. Some of you are really passionate about issues of justice that affect people. Some of you are really passionate about issues of poverty and mass incarceration and the racial inequity that still infects our criminal justice system and all these different issues. And you should be passionate about them. But what I want you to understand is as you're looking at those things, it's not just happening. The stuff you're seeing is not just happening at the level of individual moral choices or even social structures. There is an invisible spiritual war. So if you're dealing with racism or mass incarceration or the disproportionate execution of black men or dealing with the ways that our country keeps exploiting immigrants over and over and over and everybody knows the laws that we should change, but we keep not doing it. You're dealing with spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places is what I'm saying. And that's a victory that cannot be won through mere, you know, woke tweets. It's just not going to work. It's not it's not a victory that can be won through political causes through votes or political activism. It is a spiritual battle. As I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about a letter that John Wesley wrote to William Wilberforce. You know who those two people are? I'll tell you. John Wesley was one of the great evangelists and disciple makers and church planner, church planning. Not that he planted churches, but he started a movement that planted a lot of churches in the 19th century. God used him in a mighty way to bring about spiritual awakening and revival in England and America and beyond. William Wilberforce was one of the great Christian justice advocates of the 19th century. He was born into a position of power and wealth and privilege. He found himself in Parliament. And uh, after he became a Christian, he had a while where he thought, I should give away all my money. I should get out of politics and I should go be a missionary somewhere. He got really excited about it. But he had some Christian mentors who said to him, William, God puts you in this position of power and you need to use that power for good. So he ended up deciding that God had called him to fight against several evils that were destroying the lives of millions of people. But agenda item number one was the slave trade in the British Empire. And if you think about the bitter history of racial injustice and slavery in America and all that caused it, William Wilberforce decided this is one of the most evil, destructive things in the world. And God put me in this position of power to stop it now. I'm telling you all that story because I want you to hear what John Wesley wrote to, wrote to William Wilberforce in 1791. Did I say 19th century? 18th century. He wrote this. He wrote a letter. And Wesley said this to Wilberforce. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, meaning to put an end to the slave trade, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. You hear that? John Wesley is saying, William Wilberforce, your effort to end the slave trade is a spiritual battle. And if you're fighting with merely human power, then human beings and demons are going to chew you up and spit you out. But then he went on to say this. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. Till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. And William Wilberforce gave the rest of his life to praying and working for that goal. And he achieved it by God's grace. But what I'm trying to say to you is it's a spiritual battle. And if we are fighting at the, a merely 
human level of what's visible we're going to lose. But the reason that we have Jesus at the center of our community, one of the reasons here is the only way to win the, the spiritual battle is if King Jesus is fighting our battles for us. He's the only one that can win. Now, I want to invite you one more time to bow your head and pray with me. And as you bow your head, I just want you to think about this question. If Jesus is so great, why would we want to make anything else the center of our life? Why would we want to make anything else the center of our community? And I just want to ask you to take a second to pray. Worship team can go ahead and come up. We're going to sing one more song to worship Jesus in a moment. But I want to invite you to take a moment and just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there's any area of your life where you've allowed something other than Jesus to become most important. We all get into those moments of spiritual drift where something else takes center stage. Just ask the Holy Spirit to show those things to you. And when he does, just offer them to God and say, Lord, I'm giving this to you. I don't want any idols in my life. I want Jesus to be at the center. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone as my Savior, my Lord, my King, my Teacher, and my Friend. Father in heaven, we do ask today that you would forgive us for every time we've made anything other than Jesus center in our lives. And as a church, Lord, the cry of our heart is we trust Jesus. We love Jesus. Jesus is king. He's our savior. He's our friend. And we don't want anything other than Jesus to be at the center. So help us now and in all the weeks and months and years and decades to come be a Christ-centered people. And, and even now as we begin to sing to you, Lord, I just pray that you would bring freedom. We just heard that any way of life that's rooted in anything other than Jesus brings captivity, but we know the flip side is true. If we trust in Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord sets us free. So as we sing songs of praise to Jesus right now, I pray that you'd be bringing new freedom to us in our hearts as individuals and new freedom and power to us as a community. In Christ's precious name we pray.